0: Our co-pastor Emily and her wife Rachel are still at the uh, Gay Christian Network conference. Like 1,500 um, people gathered um, in Houston, Texas. Uh, our staff was there, and most of us came back except Emily and Rachel, and they're there for the final sessions. Man, it was fantastic. I hope we should post the um, the once the. Uh, main session talks are up. They're really, really fantastic, really well done talks. And, um, you know, when people are doing theology for survival, um, when they're doing theology from the margins, it's actually, um, there's a robustness and a richness to it and a, and a punch that's just great for everybody. So it was quite an experience, uh, being there. Um, I'm looking at Robin Charles standing up on that ladder. You might just want to take a look at Robin. No, stay there. Um, Robin loves to be the center of attention. This It won't last long, but uh, Robin, Robin does the uh, videos. We do a, a live stream, and we have people around who, you know, check in, like, when the weather's bad, the live stream. So it's a really important... Um, ministry of the church. And uh, if anyone's interested in helping Al and Robin uh, do the video, so they don't have like risk life and limb, like on a day like this to come in, um, that would be, that would be great. Just see them after the service. It's actually quite simple. By that, I mean, I think I could do it. And they would, (laughs) they would instruct you in the way that you should go. And you, I think you come here like 15 minutes early, set it up. You get to, you know, have the eagle's perch for checking the service out. And uh, once it's all set up, it just runs itself. So um, if you could do it once a month or something like that, that'd be terrific. So plus you could put that on your resume for your, you know, volunteer skills and get a better job. It would uh, definitely be in your self-interest to do this. Okay. I went to my first ever comedy show um, it was at the Ark. I went because it was hosted by our own Shelly Smith. It was 51st uh, Jokes, which started in New York City. And, and uh, I'd never been to a comedy club or a comedy show. And I put a breezy same day fi- Facebook invite up when I was, you know, decided I was going to go. Like, Julia and I are going to the comedy show. Anyone want to meet up? Uh, come sit with us. Once I got there and I kind of picked up the vibe, I was like, who wants to? Enjoy a comedy club sitting next to their pastor and his <laughs> priest wife. I mean, you know, pastors just like, they remind us about church on Sunday. And, and a, a comedy club has a different set of social norms <laughs> than church on Sunday. For example, the, past, the person at the microphone is not reluctant to refer to any part of the human anatomy. In, in that sense, it's very much like med school, except the focus is on only a few anatomical structures. And, you know, like in church, there's, we have like special sacred words like praise. You know, it's a, we use praise as a verb, we use praise as a noun, we sprinkle our stuff with praise. Well, at a comedy club, there's also one very special word, and it's variants that are frequently used for, for emphasis. This word can be used as a verb. It can be used as a noun, just like praise. But it can also be used as an intensifying adjective. This word is used between words. It can even be sandwiched between the syllables of a single word. And, you know, it's not so common at a church. And not even hip mega churches where the pastor sport a lip patch and a vest with jeans from Express. So, running into your pastor at a comedy club, I think it can trigger something called uh, CDD, um, Context Disparity Disorientation Disorder. So, you know, you're in one context with its own ground rules, but the sight of the pastor triggers the norming center of a different part of your brain, and the juxtaposition is jarring, and I think it can be a little confusing and disorienting. What's my point? We we may experience something like that um, in worship. Uh, worship is like the ultimate in-between space where we're coming from one context into a very different context often. Um, you know, as human beings, we, we occupy a distinct ecological spiritual niche. We stand between the dirt and the divine, right? I mean, you know... We, much is made of the fact that we share 98.5% of our DNA as a species with the chimpanzee. We actually share 50% of our DNA with the banana. I mean, so like that's, yeah, um, as a species, not individuals, you know, but, um, and, and yet we also bear the image of God. We're the image of God-bearers in the earth, which makes us priests in the temple of, of creation, of the created order of the world. It, so it really doesn't matter who you are, or what your religious background is, or how much, like, I don't know, guilt you carry or, or shame or any of that. Some disjointed feelings are inevitable. In worship, and they're inevitable, especially as you re-engage with worship or in the initial um, experience of worship. So we're in a in a series. This is second of a I think will be a four-part series uh, titled "Getting Over Ourselves." visions of an exiled prophet. The exiled prophet is uh, John who wrote the uh, book of Revelations, the last book in the Bible. Um, and we're focusing in particular on this series on uh, Revelations chapter four and five, which includes one of several um, heavenly worship scenes in the book of revelations. Uh, If you're intimidated by the book of revelations, you can always go to the worship scenes and, and you'll get something out of the worship scenes at least. And the worship scenes are all about like what's going on behind the curtain, What's going on behind the scenes? What's going on in that um, uh, hard-to-access directly but very powerful transcendent realm that is behind all of all of this that we can see and taste and touch? And, and when we're aware, when, when we um, get a sense of what's going on behind the scenes and like that heaven, what the Bible calls the heavenly realm of worship, it can actually um, inform us for our our very ordinary seeming experience of worship um, and deepen that experience. So kind of the point of the series. So the thing about Revelation chapters four and five, it's one, one scene that unfolds, is it actually contains all the elements of Christian worship like from the earliest time. So there's always a recentering on Jesus that happens in worship. That's in the scene. There's the opening of a sacred scroll representing sacred uh, scripture. Emily will be focusing on that in two weeks' time. And then there's singing. Singing is, group singing is a big feature in Revelations 4 and 5. And our own Cassie Brabs is going to preach next Sunday and cover that section. And it's going to be good. Cassie, we did a little third-way workshop at the, at the uh, GCN, well attended workshop and uh, um, uh, Emily ran it and I had a little part and Cassie had a part and Caroline had a part. Cassie was like really good. Like, you know, you never know about if speakers are people are going to be good speakers or not. It's the hardest thing to predict, actually. Um, And I was like, ooh, ooh, she's got some chops. So that was, uh, you're going to enjoy it next Sunday. And I hope, I hope like this high expectation will only make Cassie relax even more. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so today, um, though, we're going to look at some, some really fun elements, in, re, important elements in Revelation 4 and 5, because they are the elements that address our discombobulation feelings as we come into worship, what I was referring to earlier. So let's uh, look at verse 1 through 6 of chapter 4. This scene is unfolding. After this I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open, And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So it's a classic enter into a mystical experience thing. At once I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne with one seated on the throne. And the one seated there looks like jasper and carnelian. I think um, emerald and rubies is another translation. And around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Around the throne are 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones are 24 elders. Dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne burns seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne, there's something like a sea of glass, like crystal. So the the thing that you notice here is that... Uh, Early on, the identity of the one on the throne is actually less than clear. It's not until chapter 5 that the identity of the one seated on the throne is given like personality and a sense of distinct being. It's the Jewish Messiah. It's the lamb who was slain, which is code for the Jewish Messiah at the center of the throne. But we don't know that at the beginning of Revelations 4. It's just one who is seated on the throne. So we don't actually, this is like part of the dynamics of worship. We don't actually start with like this clear as crystal, you know, vision of God. And then that just kind of forces us down on our knees to worship. We actually start with kind of a vague notion of God. And it's as we give ourselves to worship as we're like willing to step into the fog of worship, that the one we seek actually then can come more clearly into our focus. You know, I I, I know um, the self consciousness uh, that I felt when I returned from atheism as a young man to worship, and it was my self consciousness in worship was acute. It, um, All of my, like, I had a lot of, like, detached, critical feelings as an early adolescent about worship, from my experience of worship um, in the 1950s and early 60s. And as I reengaged worship, and I'd been away for many years, um, all those um, kind of projected feelings, you know, um, outward were, like, coming back on my own head as I was, you know, myself. To, you know, trying to worship again. And um, I was so self-critical, and I was so self-focused. I was so self, um, self-conscious. It, w- it was like being, you know, it's like like going into adolescent, early adolescence, like overnight kind of experience. And I asked myself, well, what caused me to press through that static, why, why does anyone press through that static to um, give themselves more to worship? Well, it's it's what's depicted here in Revelations 4. Something is drawing us. And that something is like a sense, a glimmering hope, if, if only a glimmering hope, of, of the beautiful. Uh, we get wooed into worship by a sense or a hope of the beautiful. And, you know, in our... Sunday worship, it can be conveyed or carried on a, a, a line in a song grabs us, or like, even like a chord change, you know, sometimes the chord change, you go, oh, I like that chord change, or something even less tangible is happening, but something often is beckoning us, and that it's like in Revelation 4, the throne is depicted with a magnetic field of the beautiful surrounding it, um, and the one seated there looks like jasper and carnelian, and around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. So it's like the smell of bread baking that draws you into the kitchen. That's the dynamic going on. Of course, the underlying fear that um, we have in worship is the—it's you know, just the normal core human fear. It's the fear of rejection. Um, it's the fear of being being put out of a space that you want to inhabit. And of course, people too often will use religion perversely to actually intensify that fear. But the rainbow surrounding the throne is actually there um, with the understanding that that fear is normal and to calm that fear every time we enter into worship. So in the Torah, in the um, first five books of the Hebrew Bible um, in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, uh, the rainbow appears at a very in a very significant context. It appears after the flood that was unleashed to judge. The rampant violence that was on the earth. So, you know, in the story, after 40 days and 40 nights of rain and this flood, the, uh, when it's all over, the rainbow appears in the sky. And God speaks um, interpretive words over the appearance of the rainbow. It's meant as a sign of reassurance. God is saying, whenever the clouds, storm clouds appear again, and you fear punishment, you fear judgment, you fear exclusion, the rainbow is a sign that you don't have to worry about that anymore. It's a sign of my covenant with you and all living things to bless you that's just precious, that it's not just a covenant with us. It's a covenant, which which means in that context, like a, a divine and binding promise, a promise that God makes that He holds Himself to. It's a covenant with all living things. So it's like, It absolutely has to include us, you know, if it's all living things. So, yes, rainbows are the sign of divine reassurance in the Bible. So I've, I've been purposefully um, circumspect about rehashing the events that led to our our birth as a church, Blue Ocean Faith, Ann Arbor. Um, and I'm glad I have been. After the baby's born, you don't need to go into the gory details about the labor and delivery, right? You know, that's like for, you know, that's like the women's club can talk about that, you know, or whatever. It's not It's not like polite conversation usually, but... But this worship scene is, is just begging me to share one of the really positive things about that difficult period, which was the reassurance that um, Emily and I received through actual rainbows appearing at, like, key junctures in the unfolding of that, of that process. So just to back up a little bit, um, I saw the movie The Big Short. Uh, I think it was maybe 10... That's a a really worthwhile movie. I think I came away thinking I know something about what happened in the Great Recession. I can't repeat it, but I kind of get enough of the key elements to understand something of what was going down there. Um, But seeing that movie, you know, sometimes you see a movie and it takes you back, especially if it's based on historical events. It takes you back to a time in your life, and you're kind of flooded with memories about a lot of things that were going on at that period. Um, that movie took me back to uh, where I actually was when I first heard the news, the kind of breaking news about the the Great Recession, which is a little more, um, it happened like, Quickly for me, the news came to me because I was at a um, board meeting uh, at my, uh, my old denomination, and this particular board meeting was on a cruise ship along the Alaskan coast. We, we would, you know, the we had a lot of responsibility. We weren't paid f- by the denomination for any of this, and so once a year there'd be like a, a, a nice venue for the meeting, and this was like the ni- nicest. It was like a cruise ship, and and I was on the on the cruise ship, and we had gone. Out of uh, internet or television range um, and so i 'm by this time i 'm diving this is two thousand and seven I think I, yeah or, or eight, I know it would have been two thousand seven uh, and i 'm already kind of diving into my rethink on LGbt and at dinner at the um, on the cruise ship you know you 're with the people you 're with for dinner it 's really nice and um, I'm talking this over with a fellow board member. I was pretty candid with my fellow board members as I was um, uh, progressing in my thinking here. And he, I remember very vividly, he said, oh, uh, Ken, where are you landing on this? Because it was a very you know engaged, warm conversation, but you know, he became a little alarmed. Where are you landing on this? Because where it sounds like you're headed would put you outside the circle. And as I think about that now, it's kind of an ominous thing to say when you're on a ship at sea. <laughs> you know, like it was—it was like filled with meaning of outside the circle of the table and the privilege of being able to go on a cruise ship and you know you're leading, helping to lead this you know organization and all that. And when we got back into TV, um, you know, internet range. The news was all over, you know, the cable news networks, Goldman Sachs, Countrywide, tanking, and, you know, we're we're in a bad way. And and that year it was like two tributary streams, you know, uh, merged into more like a river of uh, anxiety for me. Um, And that river kept rising into 2012. So the summer of 2012, I break my ankle uh, on a trip with my um, kids to Yosemite. I come back, I get pneumonia. And I go to a staff retreat on crutches with a fever still from the pneumonia. It was was really hard to get a group of people at one place at one time. So just go gut it out, do it and the one of the main points of the retreat was to you know thrash through third way full lgbt inclusion and we committed as a staff to to rolling that out and it was it was kind of exciting and nerve-wracking and we all knew it could be stormy and literally as we're driving back i think it, the retreat center was in clarkston or a northern suburb or something as a at a retreat center um uh, for the Jesuits, I think. And on the drive back into Ann Arbor, literally, there's a bright double rainbow like over the city of Ann Arbor. Um, Emily, who likes our prophet lady, you know, she stopped and took a picture of the rainbow given what the decision we'd made. And the Ann Arbor News, you know, online version at 23 pictures of the double rainbow over, uh, over Ann Arbor that day. It was very striking. It was, a, it was like a needed sign of reassurance. Everything's going to be all right. I, I promise it's going to be okay. A few months later, and this is 2012, One of our pastors dies suddenly at a key juncture. It's the Sunday that I'm applying the full inclusion implications of Romans 14 to the issue, the LGBT question uh, in a sermon. And um, of course, that's my, my late wife, Nancy. And Emily wasn't there. Uh, It was really hard for Emily not to be there, but she had been invited to speak at a church in Midland. And so she hadn't heard the news about Nancy. She's driving home. But as Emily comes back into town on Getty's Road, uh, she stops the car because she sees a bright double rainbow like over over the city. Um, And knowing the sermon topic that day, she stops and takes a picture of it and then it was like an hour later that emily gets the call from my daughter emily or uh, uh, amy about uh, about nancy and this was very significant for Emily. Emily was um, confided in Nancy, you know, very personal things. Uh, Nancy was a big supporter of Emily being herself. And so this loss at this time was super distressing uh, to Emily, as you can imagine. And the rainbow was, was a sign. Everything's going to be all right, I promise. It was a sign to me in, in my grief that uh, when I later heard about this, oh, wow, Two years to the day later, so it's the second anniversary of Nancy's passing, October 14th, 2014, things were not going well at the old church for me and Emily. And we decided to uh, meet with two board members, the ones we most trusted, who, by the way, were just amazing through this mess. mess and we wanted to say, you know, we just don't want to stay if it means fighting to stay. Send us out to plant or something. Let this, this, needs to, this needs to be over. And before heading to this meeting, so it's kind of like a, in my mind, it's a big meeting. Julia and I are out walking on the, on the street um, as, before I get into the car. The sky darkens ominously, rain falls, and then arching over the street, double rainbow. So the rainbow is a sign. It's okay. Don't let the storm clouds frighten you. Everything's gonna be all right, I promise. It's like, just keep going in spite of your insecurities and your fears. So in, in Revelations 14, you have varied expressions of beauty surrounding the throne right? You've got the calm, um, you might say the static beauty of the jewels, uh, the the emeralds and rubies, or this translation, the jasper and the carnelian. Um, You've got the, you know, beauty, obviously, of the surrounding rainbow. The, The throne is like enveloped in this rainbow. But you've also got the, a little bit later, a few verses later, you've got the disruptive Beauty of uh, peals of thunder and flashes of lightning issuing from the throne. And I'm I'm like one of these people. I like to drive outside when it's flashing lightning and storming, and because to me it's just a, a beautiful experience as long as you survive. And um, <laughs> you know storms happen where two uh, different weather systems uh, bearing different energy loads collide. And the power differential in those two storm systems is resolved in a, like, a release of energy. Is that close enough, Mike? Close enough. Okay. We have, a, we have like, a climate scientist here. And I'm telling you about this. this is like, oh, gosh. Oh, that's, I got the nod. That's close enough. Um, so that... that Differential is resolved; that like gets worked out in the in the storminess that happens, and then once those two um, storm systems collide, they kind of resolve through the storm. Um, this is the, actually an inevitable aspect of the human divine encounter, isn't it? I mean, we come into worship. Feeling in charge. I mean, how can you live your life without just feeling in charge and control? Because there's a lot going on. You need to, like, have a little confidence that you can control things. Totally understandable. But we bring sometimes that exaggerated sense of control and being in charge of our lives. uh, And then we encounter God, you know, who's like in charge of everything. He's on the throne, and resolving that power differential uh, can be stormy. It's like the first year of marriage, you know. I mean, there's two people who are autonomous come together. And it can be a little bit stormy because it's like a power, a power thing needs to get recalibrated in that, in that period. It's the same thing with the human divine encounter. Um, but storms have a beauty of all their own, don't they? And they're exciting to us uh, for that very reason. As long as everyone comes out fine, especially flooding—if you know, <laughs> you've ever been flooded, you're like your excitement about storms diminishes. But um, whenever we approach the throne of God, um, whenever we come to worship, uh, the rainbow is there to reassure us. Um, it's okay. Don't let the storminess frighten you of your life, of the encounter with God, of you of God, trying to learn how to keep each other's company. Everything is going to be all right. I promise you, just keep at it. Keep going. So, you know, what fear is pestering you below the surface uh, when you worship? We all bring our little neurotic fears with us into worship. Um, it's your fear of, uh, I don't know, spiritual inadequacy. This is something that someone more spiritual than I should be doing. What a hypocrite that I'm, you know, like pretending to be the kind of person who worships. If my sister could see me, like, worshiping, she would laugh. <laughs> or, you know, it might be fear of exposure. You know, you feel... In order to engage in worship, you have to like lower your guard a little bit. You have to be a little bit more vulnerable, and then it was a ooh, then fear of exposure, um, fear of being noticed critically by others. You know, like that's, that's the pain of being an adolescent. You, you feel like everyone is looking at you. And, and I, I just, you know, I tell my teenage kids, you know, everyone, everyone is just like you. They're concerned about themselves, you know, and so they don't have eyes to pay so much attention to you. So don't worry about being critically noticed by others all the time, or our fear might be of not being noticed, that we're in the presence of God and he's noticing this person But he's does he really hear me does he notice me it's it's, you know we can have fears of um, God telling us something that we don't want to hear if we get close to him so wouldn't it be better to just keep it at a distance we can have a fear of like getting burned by religion or burned by religion again in worship just a whole panoply of fears That we bring up with us into worship. Just normal human beings experience this. We're pestered by these fears below the surface. The rainbow. (laughs) We all need reassurance. Everything's going to be all right. I promise. And I will hold myself to that promise, says God. And that's for us every time we worship. Every time we worship. So let us um, have a little time of silent reflection. I think I'm just going to like leave it open and just take two minutes together and uh, reflect on whatever you'd like to. Um, picture a rainbow if you want to or just um, have a little conversation with God and then we'll continue with our um, service. As we uh, pivot to communion, we're going to have um, our offering now. Uh, most people actually give online, which is awesome. But it's, it's just good to have an offering to remember that our financial gifts are also part of our worship, and just the way we use our money is part of our worship. So the ushers will pass those um, baskets around for for our offering, and we'll sing the doxology together.